Hi, everybody. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Welcome to the auto-inflammatory disease, aka Stills disease panel. I'm joined by three experts and friends, uh, all from New York, my home state. Uh, Dr. Petros Athemio in New York City, Dr. Olga Petrina in New York City, and Dr. Apostolos Concius out in Long Island. How's everybody this evening? Very well. Very good. You're doing great. Okay, so we're going we're gonna, to uh, gonna turn this over to Petros, and he's going to talk about Abstract uh, Friday 0493. Um, Petros, tell us about this, the IL-1 inhibitor canakinumab for refractory stills disease. Uh, yes, Jack. This is a, a retrospective longitudinal multicenter uh, study from Greece, my home country, and uh, uh, it, it involved 50 patients with still disease, uh, 39 with adult onset, and 11 uh, with systemic GIA. And these were refractory patients, and it followed them longitudinally, and it was a successful study. Uh, by month one, the majority of the patients had a response. It's a fast-acting drug. And by month three, uh, there, there was significant improvement with the exception of one refractory patient. So this study was um, one of the largest cohorts of canakinumab in uh, Stills disease. And it showed efficacy doses 150 to 300 milligrams every four or every eight weeks. Uh, there were some interesting uh, uh, points from this study. For example, if a patient had failed more than two biologics prior to studying anakinumab, it was unlikely that it would uh, achieve complete remission. Uh, it also showed that uh, patients uh, with uh, Stills disease um, tolerated well anakinumab. The major side effects were infections, 20%. Four of them, four percent of them were serious infections and 6% had leukopenia. So the interesting thing I see in, in the paper is that uh, 24 uh, of the patients had previously received anakinra, and they had moved on to another IL-1 inhibitor. So that's kind of interesting. I think that's something people would know. Olga Apostolos, do you do that in your patients? Do you start out with one and go to another IL-1 inhibitor? I do actually uh, use uh, multiple IL-1s in my patients, mostly because we don't have that many effective treatment options available for them. So even if the patient fails one IL-1, I still give it to try with another one. And I feel like in a lot of my patients who failed shorter acting IL-1 inhibitors, switching to longer acting one may, may make a difference and they can actually still have a good response. I do the same, Jack. I do the same uh, for a couple of reasons. One being that the short acting like anakinra, for example, is a daily injection. Uh, uh, many patients do appreciate that uh, um, uh, they, uh, they have side effects from that injection side reactions more so than the longer acting ones in, in my experience. And the other thing is, uh, especially the systemic onset early on, robust inflammatory phenotype uh, uh, of certain patients, I do think that um, higher doses of anakinra sometimes are required, uh, perhaps, and um, the longer-acting ones, like anakinra, for example, even uh, at a dose of uh, 150 or 300 milligrams at times, uh, can, can do the trick sometimes in these uh, highly inflammatory patients to begin with. So the other patients who failed, I would say not surprisingly, were people who were on steroids or methotrexate. 13 had been on a TNF inhibitor 
uh, two had been on abatacept. These are not drugs that are really known to be very effective in uh, especially systemic disease. So it makes sense to move on to an IL-1 inhibitor in those. Um, but is there, was there anything from the abstract, Petros, about those people and maybe why, why would someone use those drugs as opposed to going right to an IL-1 or an IL-6 inhibitor? In fact, there were uh, seven patients who had failed IL-6 blockade before getting uh, canakinumab. Absolutely, and they, they have been a few case reports in the literature. And of course, uh, you know, the initial biologic uh, use in skills with TMF inhibitors, I agree with you. Uh, it may work uh, a little bit for the arthritis, especially in the chronic articular phase, but uh, during the systemic phase, they're less effective than uh, IL-1 and IL-6 inhibitors. So the, the choice of going to IL-1 or IL-6 is uh, uh, these days more um, organically embedded in our uh, approach. But uh, I think many, some patients may have been uh, falsely diagnosed with seronegative array. Um, that's something we see in the chronic particular phase and maybe treat those drugs. Or it could be the level of comfort uh, from uh, physicians. But I think the uh, message is out there. Uh, it's definitely there for our pediatric colleagues and also for adults that um, the pivotal cytokines are L1 and L6. Uh, I thought it was interesting in, the, in this abstract that uh, they were able to uh, wean uh, corticosteroids in 51% of patients. Uh, that's pretty similar to what Fabrizio de Benedetti presented in the oral session. And uh, across the studies, both for uh, tocilizumab and uh, canakinumab, um, even in the pediatric population, uh, it's pretty similar. 50% of patients will come off uh, steroids completely, but the other 50% uh, will not. Does anybody want to take a stab as to how you choose between 150 or 300 milligrams as your dose when using canakinumab and stills? Yeah, uh, I have a, a, a handful of patients who were um, on long-standing high dose of steroids. I'm talking about, honestly, more than 40 milligrams at times, I have to admit. I'm not sure why it took so long uh, to, uh, to get on board uh, with the biologic sometimes, honestly. But the, I had a handful of patients who had long-standing, robust inflammatory phenotype, uh, unable to wean down from 40 uh, milligrams or so with severe um, uh, uh, steroid-induced side effects that I, I did use uh, uh, 300 uh, to begin with, honestly, uh, on these handful of patients. Usually I don't, but uh, when there's a pressing, urgent need to, to find something that really works, uh, you know, at fast uh, and, and adequately uh, to be able to allow uh, winning of steroids, that's the, that's the situations that I, I predict. Olga? Yeah, I agree uh, with Apostolos. In patients who present with more severe disease or the ones who failed multiple treatment options before they went on canakinumab, I would probably start with a 300 milligram dose and when they achieve remission, I would taper down to 150. Although in some of my patients who have milder phenotype and uh, or they didn't fail other treatments before, I, I tend to start with 150 and only go to 200 if, if it's not sufficient uh, in milder cases. All right, let's move I, on. I've, to even gone, uh, I've even gone up to 450 for some really refractory patients, mm -hmm. but whatever goes up goes down. So once they achieve remission, I'm very eager to uh, dial it down. And that was also 
mentioning that after I just, uh, um, you know, presented, uh, because that's possible. You know, this it's a possibility that we can get patients off that, and uh, we can do it either by decreasing the dose and or increasing the interval. Um, and uh, maybe, you know, I had, there were patients there that went uh, with a maintenance every three months until they were off. So it's a highly individualized uh, regimen for patients. All right, our next abstract is uh, FRI Friday 0505, tocilizumab discontinuation after remission in Stills disease by Tamai uh, Kaniko and Taguchi in Japan. Olga, you saw this, what do you think? Yes, so I think it's a great study and it actually is a retrospective review of patients who were treated with tocilizumab between 2012-2019 and were able to achieve remission. And out of 42 patients who were able to, to achieve remission with 8 milligram per kilogram tocilizumab dose in IV infusions, 13 patients actually discontinued treatment and they were studied and analyzed by this group. So out of 13 patients who discontinued tocilizumab because of the remission, not because of other causes, of course, six patients were able to uh, stay in remission, which is 46% of the patients, and seven of the patients relapsed. Uh, and uh, when they looked into reasons uh, why patients relapsed or what was the, the most common associated uh, factors that led to relapse, they found that uh, duration of the tocilizumab therapy had nothing to do with the, with the frequency of relapse, while the intervals between infusions were important. So patients who uh, relapsed had intervals between infusions of uh, 3.6 weeks, while patients who were uh, remaining in remission had longer intervals of 6.7 patients, which probably reflects a better response to treatment. Also, the dose of steroids was important. So patients who were able to wean off prednisone completely or stayed on very low doses were more likely to stay in remission. So in, in remission group, they had zero milligram of prednisone, while in the relapse group, patients were on five milligram of prednisone. And also they noticed that patients who were older um, while they were treated with tocilizumab or who were older when we were, were diagnosed with adults onset still disease were more likely to, to relapse. So I, I find this like a very interesting study. And it seems like even in a small percentage of patients, remission of medication is still possible, but there are factors to consider before we decide to, to taper off treatments in, in, in those more complicated patients. So this was observational, it's, it's, it's instructive. Uh, but nonetheless observational. I want to go around the horn and ask everyone, what's your rule for allowing patients to go off therapy? Like what, obviously when you start someone on a biologic, steroids, and whatever you need to control systemic uh, features of Stills disease, the question the patient is going to ask is, how long am I going to be on this? And I tell my patients, I don't know, eight months to eight years, and we're going to wait and see. But I'll tell you my rules, but let's start with Apostolos. Tell me your rules as quickly as you can. We'll go around the horn so we can give uh, the audience a feel for sure. what's that, what they should think of. Yes, so, so in, in my practice, uh, um, I think it depends on the phenotype of the patient, uh, uh, systemic versus chronic articular. Uh, uh, it may be uh, less likely to, um, uh, to wean and taper uh, uh, faster if a patient is a chronic articular patient versus a systemic one. Uh, what I usually do is I, I space out the, uh, uh, the interval, uh, assuming that they're in remission and monitor very, very closely. 
um, from every two weeks, for example, to every four weeks, and subsequently, depending on how, uh, if they're still in remission, I, I decide to wean them off. But I definitely keep them for a good year, uh, 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 no steroids on board, um, uh, in the background of a DMAR, uh, potentially methotrexate, of course, um, and then I decide to wean off as soon as they're in remission. Petros, what do you do? Well, my, I tell the patient that, uh, you know, no, there's going to be no promises. I think the earlier we diagnose, the more likely we are to bring the patient remission, possibly without medication. My uh, rule of thumb is once they're on remission without steroids for six months, then we're talking about tapering uh, the uh, treatment potentially to off. And I've, I've been able to do that. Olga? Yeah, I agree with the steroid-free interval. It's important that they're able to maintain remission without steroids on board. And then after we start tapering their biologic, I first tend to decrease the dose. Let's say if they were on tocilizumab 8, we can go down to 4 milligram per kg. Or if they were kinikidumab 300, we go down to 150. And then only if they maintain remission at that lower dose, I start spacing intervals until we gradually lean off. But I, I usually tell my patients at least a year or maybe even more. So that's what I tell patients. I, first off, what we're getting is consistency both from the paper and all from all of you is no steroids and then you change your interval and if you are successful there, then you might be green lighted. But I, I do what also what uh, Olga does is I, I tell the patient, you show me a year of no activity of remission and then we will be able to go off of therapy. And, and then the best you can promise is what they saw in this patient in this study, that maybe it's 50-50, right? Because there are these people that are going to linger for a long time. Uh, I thought this was interesting. I think we need a biomarker, but uh, uh, short of that, does anybody else have another tool? Uh, I don't think there's a lab test that you can you can monitor. I'll tell. I, I'll give you my one pearl in the you know in monitoring Stills disease. You know the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio is kind of cool, but you got to do the math on that. That's kind of interesting. Most people measure ferritin. It's actually not that good because it's only really super high in 50% of people, in my opinion. But the one that works really, really well is aldolase. People who have very high aldolase levels, they'll get better when they're, when they're improved, but they may not totally get to normal. Um, aldolase is a good biomarker, and it's cheap compared to a lot of other things that are out there. Let's go on to the, 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 the third abstract um, from Saturday, uh, SAT 0557. <coughs> From Bendoli, this is a how to assess residual disease activity in Stills disease using uh, FEG PET. Petros. Yes, it goes back to what you were saying, Jack, that we don't really have a good uh, serologic biomarker, uh, and uh, we're looking for anything else, and clinical biomarker, radiographic biomarker. Um, there have been there's been a few publications in the last uh, few years about the use of PET CT or PET MRI. And uh, there's, there are a few areas that light up with active still disease, usually the spleen, the lymph nodes, the bone marrow, and the pharynx. Um, and uh, by, by checking uh, a PET-CT or PET-MRI, uh, you can uh, possibly pick up residual activity while you know, other um, less uh, uh, perfect biomarkers are not very helpful. So in this study by Paolo Sfrizzo from the University of Padova, they actually um, did a qualitative and a semi-quantitative analysis of uh, PET-MRI, and they saw that uh, the activity and the, uh, correlates actually with the, with the clinical symptoms and can show residual activity while 
we think that the patient may be in remission. So that may be helpful in what we were saying earlier, uh, helping us time potentially the withdrawal of drugs. Really interesting. I guess the real issue on everyone's mind is how do you get it paid for? Has that been a problem for you? I mean, you have some experience doing this. What's been, what's been your experience in trying to get this done? Uh, it, it's not easy with, uh, uh, with insurances, but I've been able to get a less uh, PET CT uh, for some patients. Uh, it takes some uh, you know, persistence and explaining and you know, a, a lot of time on the phone explaining to the insurance company why you want to do it. But I've been, I've been successful in getting in a few patients. It was helpful. Yeah, these prove, uh, have proven in many studies to be very helpful in FUO patients and systemic disease patients, you know, GCA. You know, CT scans are good at damage, but FDG PETs are actually good at these activities. So it's not surprising that this could be helpful in maybe deciding can you wean off therapy or not. Uh, anybody else have experience with this in their center? In my experience, if you, uh, if you justify it as, as, a, as an FUO workup, it is perhaps a bit more likely for that to be approved. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think that's very, very random individualized, you know, uh, based on the center and so on and so forth. But um, uh, there, there could be value, absolutely, in, in these uh, patients, for sure. Also, if they have lymphadenopathy, then you can, you know, explain that you're doing the workup, rolling out uh, maybe hematology malignancy. Okay. I think that that's also helps uh, getting mm -hmm. through some things. Mm -hmm. All right, let's let's do um, uh, two quickies if we can. Um, I'll give you one quickie. Uh, this is THU or Thursday 0496. The application of systems biology in silico tools to optimize treatment strategy in Stills disease. This is a very aggressive big data analysis of basically all data out there. The uh, researchers there uh, use uh, a number of different analytical tools to uh, develop these artificial uh, neural networks, um, sampling methods, and artificial intelligence to find all the clinical available clinical information on um, both the biology of Stills disease and also the response to treatment, looking at IL-1 inhibitors and Akinra. Uh, and canakitumab, IL-6 inhibitors, cerilumab, and tocilizumab, and DMARD therapy, methotrexate and prednisone. And I'll just say that it was a very aggressive, very confusing analysis that in the end said it looks like it, it makes more sense to use an IL-1-based approach to treat acute disease targeting the innate immune response, and that IL-6 could be later on and for more autoimmune features of disease. But it's, you know, it had many failings, including a lot of gaps in information not displayed, but I put it up because it's maybe the future. There are a lot of reports here at this meeting about you know, machine learning and big data and helping to make some tough decisions on your next best therapy in many diseases, not just in, in, in auto-inflammatory, but also in RA and lupus and other autoimmunities. So I thought that was interesting only if that it is going to be the future. Um, uh, Petros, why don't you talk about this, um, uh, I don't know who's going to do this, Petros or, or Olga, the 10 registries, the initial, initial treatment of systemic JIA data from a big, large collaborator effort, OP0197. Uh, well, I can, I, can, I can say a couple of things about it, but you know, I want the other contributors to jump in. I think it was interesting to see that there is a shift in the uh, therapeutic paradigm 
where you know after patients fail MSELs, instead of going into uh, methotrexate or other traditional DMARDs in uh, Stills disease, they actually go to a more targeted approach with either IL-1 or IL-6 inhibitors. And I think that was uh, obviously more obvious in uh, pediatric systemic GIA or pediatric Stills disease, but I think it's catching up with the adult uh, uh, you know, patients as well and uh, maybe indicates a shift in the way we think about this disease. But I would like to hear what other people think about it. Yeah, many countries, many, 1,149 patients, um, followed patients for uh, five to eight years, uh, and over a time frame of, what was it, 2012 to 2018, and yeah, this whole this frame shift away from uh, DMARD therapy more towards biologic, more towards IL-1 seems to make sense, I think is the right move. Um, how, let's go ask uh, everyone, Olga, what's your preferred first-line therapy? You, someone's diagnosed, they're in the hospital, um, or they just got out of the hospital, referred to you, they're on steroids, what's your first drug you use? So usually I start with an IL-1 inhibitor, and then depends on their coverage, whichever I can, I can get approved for them. I feel like uh, the, the, the benefit and side effect ratio is really good. You know, the side effect profile is fairly safe. And from my experience, it's very possible to achieve remission with IL-1 if patient responds well to treatment. So this is my go-to group of medications. Typically, inpatient anakindra is the one that's first available because it's on formula in most of the hospitals, from what I know. And uh, we usually start with that, and we try to switch to longer-acting agents later on if patient is not satisfied with, with the effect of um, anakindra. And I actually find it interesting that in this particular article, they mentioned that steroid use remains heavy in the first year of treatment, in like 70 Two or 72 percent of patients were on steroids in the first year of treatment, and only after one year it drops. I feel like in my practice we try to lower steroid dose and wean off steroids rather faster. So I would say, in real life, in my practice, I go aggressively with um, biologic therapy to to minimize steroid use in my patients. So I think that everyone on this panel is pretty much an IL one first fan. Um, nod your heads if that's true. That's if that's true, then I want to ask uh, uh, Apostolos and uh, Petros, under what circumstances would you use an IL-6 inhibitor first? Um, anybody who wants to start with that? Go ahead. All right. Uh, thanks, <laughs> I mean, I, I think I, I've seen some patients with very extensive, um, aggressive synovitis and arthritis, where I feel there's uh, you know, more, um, uh, uh, you know, combination of innate immunity, but also adaptive immunity. Um, there, there was a, a paper by Peter Nigrovich uh, about that. Um, usually happens uh, a lot more in the chronic astigula phase. And I find that uh, hitting aggressively with, uh, uh, with IL-6 inhibition um, in a really high dose and short intervals. I mean, I've gone to every two weeks or every 10 days. Uh, I think apostles I shared the patient can be beneficial to that. Uh, but I'm always worried about, you know, obviously side effect profile. You know, a lot of patients with uh, still disease have high LFTs and that, you know, that's part of the disease state. But of course, giving a medication that can also potentially increase the LFTs, you know, can be a little confounding. Uh, but I found it to be, you know, uh, viable, but it doesn't work in uh, lower doses. It has to be a high dose and often we use in a short interval. Um, and uh, these two side effects are really the pivotal ones, in my opinion. 
yeah, I, I echo Petrus's uh, comments for sure. Uh, uh, in my experience, there have been uh, a few patients on on IL six, though in the in the heavily articular uh, patients. You know, all normal ferritin. By the way, the IL six blockade acts normal sedrate CRPs, and they still had some chronic synovitis there. So, so I, I think it, it you know. Um, it does require a very careful clinical exam on these patients who are uh, to actually be prescribed IL-6 long-term to make sure you're not missing any, any uh, indolent um, synovitis, which can lead to distractive arthritis and so on and so forth. Okay, so I'd like to end our panel discussion with another auto-inflammatory condition, and that is Bichette's um, syndrome. The relief study uh, from Hatemi and colleagues, that's abstract OP0028, was presented at this uh, particular at this meeting here at ULR. It's a, a phase three um, double-blind randomized control trial with a 12-week primary endpoint, 207 patients who were enrolled. They had to have um, greater than three oral ulcers at uh, randomization and greater than two uh, at screening. Um, and they were then randomized to receive either placebo BID or a primalast BID with a 12-week endpoint. The primary was Endpoint was area under the curve for the number of oral ulcers. And, you know, like other studies that we've seen before, the outcomes here were impressive, where, uh, you know, the amount of improvement was large in a number of patients, that the number of patients who had a greater than 50% improvement in their oral ulcer pain by week 12 was 67%, two thirds on a primalast. Uh, and 36% um, on placebo. And as you can imagine, uh, pretty much no side effects, some GI, some diarrhea with the aprimolast, but otherwise very well controlled. Um, uh, Apostolos, what do you think yes, of this data? I think it does establish aprimolast as, as uh, one of the drug of choice, uh, drugs of choice for uh, uh, oral uh, ulcers in relation to Bechet's disease. Uh, uh, clearly, there's a robust uh, improvement. And what's, what's striking is the, is the, the answer, the time uh, that it takes for that to, uh, uh, for patients, I guess, to see uh, uh, relief and, and improvement. It's, uh, as we can see there, the first week or two, and then it plateaus, the curve plateaus. But, you know, within the first couple of weeks, pretty much, uh, uh, you know, patients can get belief, actually. Uh, um, uh, and they, uh, these patients, most of them, it seems that they have been uh, also tried other non-biologic DMARDs. I, I presume uh, perhaps colgicine as a fabric they don't mention here in the study, it seems like, but I, I, I suppose these were the ones that they, they've tried. So uh, uh, I think uh, this is definitely one of the drugs of choice, and I think it's... Uh, um, uh, for, for Bechet's uh, oral ulcers at this point. So rather, rather than um, uh, talk about our anecdotal experiences using this, I mean, it is FDA, well, actually it's not anecdotal, it's now FDA approved uh, and, and can be used. Um, does anybody think that a primalast, uh, one, why does it work here? And two, would it work in other auto-inflammatory diseases? Yeah. That, that's a good point. I, I do think that based on its mechan uh, mechanism of action, it does uh, affect innate immune you know, pathways. Uh, um, um, uh, I guess by, by the way it acts, 
it has the capacity to uh, to improve uh, uh, symptoms uh, related to, um, to to innate immune pathology for sure. Uh, mucosal or skin, uh, perhaps, uh, is 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 the is the tissue target. Uh, um, in uh, wherever there is a, a condition uh, of innate immune pathology that affects that that, that uh, uh, implicates um, uh, these pathways, these may be the this may be the drug of choice. Well, uh, I was uh, recently speaking to Dan Kastner from uh, the National Institute of Health, and he believes uh, Premulast is uh, uh, is a IL-12 inhibitor, not the most robust, but you know downstream from PD4 inhibition inhibits IL-12 and. Uh, that's a, that's a very important cytokine in uh, Bechet's disease, but also the inflammatory diseases. So maybe what we're seeing is the result of this uh, inhibition. And there was a, another abstract from uh, Barcelona in this meeting where the, uh, <clears throat> they looked at patients enrolled in this study, and they looked at non-oral or non-genital ulcer uh, manifestations, and they saw that the premolars may have a beneficial effect in ileitis, the GI disease and the skin, you know, the other skin manifestation of Bechet's, uh, uh, which could be pseudofolliculitis, uh, uh, for example. Uh, so I think there's more to that, and I think we're eager to find out exactly how much uh, does it help those uh, very affected patients. I, my own belief, looking at the biology of this and being a PD4 inhibitor, is that I think it's most of it's mediated through neutrophil effects. Uh, and, um, and certainly that might be active in systemic JIA and stills, but maybe we'll see that someday. We'll give the last word on this topic of a primalast and Bichette's and beyond to Olga. What do you think? Well, I think that it may potentially work in other conditions, as Petrus mentioned, through, through mechanism for in, uh, affecting IL-12. Uh, but going back to that other abstract talking about non-oral ulcer manifestations, the, the, the effect was really limited to skin and, and GI manifestations. So I'm a bit skeptical about efficacy on systemic uh, manifestations like fevers, lymphadenopathy, uh, and other symptoms that we see in other inflammatory conditions. So I would be very cautious to say it may work in other conditions. Right. I'm, not, I'm glad you put that proviso in because we, we do not want to encourage that. Um, I would like to encourage the research, but certainly not that uh, therapeutic choice at this point. I want to thank the panel for a great discussion on some really interesting papers here at ULR. A virtual meeting. This is a virtual panel. I think we all did great. Right. See you in Paris next week. Paris is the next one? It is. All right. We, we, we will be there, even if the virtual right. people aren't. All right. Good night. Definitely. Great seeing you all.